Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. For those of you who follow my Facebook will know that I'm a keen push bike rider. During the COVID-19 restriction, my inter- and intrastate travel requirements ground to a halt. So this provided me with a unique opportunity to pursue one of my passions, bike riding. Over the past few months, I've enjoyed many long bike rides, anything from five hours up to ten hours around the beautiful southeast Queensland. This has afforded me the opportunity to listen to a broad range of podcasts. That's where the idea for CBA's podcast, Seen and Heard, began. So each month I'll be talking with industry leaders from a range of sectors on topical issues in a relaxed conversation style. So sit back and enjoy. Today's podcast, our maiden podcast, is brought to you by our podcast partner, CRH Law. My very special guest today is one of the country's most revered legal professionals. He's recognised expert in elder law. No, that doesn't mean he's an old lawyer the aged care, retirement and estate planning and disability sectors. He consistently wins awards and he is acknowledged by his peers as a leader in his field. He is a broadcaster and a popular presenter on many elder law topics and issues. I've had the honour of sharing a stage with my guest over the years and the one thing I've learnt is that not to go after him for your presentation as it will not hold a candle to his and he's now soon to become a published writer of his own book, Avoiding the Ageing Parent Trap. And did I also mention he's my brother, Brian Hurd. Later this year, Brian will be launching, or maybe early next year, Brian will be launching his first book called Avoiding the Ageing Parent Trap, an essential guide to anyone trying to understand the complexities of the aged care system. Brian calls upon the countless real-life stories, some you will not believe, to highlight the pitfalls and an often complex, emotive and frustrating period for many of us as we try to support our ageing parents. Coincidentally, Brian and his four siblings, me included, are currently working through some of these matters raised in Brian's books. Our parents, both in their 90s, have moved into aged care, residential aged care, during COVID-19. So Brian has first-hand experience to call on as well. During this podcast, I'll be delving into Brian's background, asking him what attracted him to the law. For those of you who know Brian would agree, the law and Brian are a perfect fit. Seeing his insights, asking his insights into the future of the aged care sector, and of course providing you with a sneak preview of his first book, Avoiding the Aging Parent Trap. Before we bring Brian in, let's have a quick word from our podcast partner, CRH Law. CRH Law is a boutique law firm offering legal services that they are good at and they like providing. The interest of the not-for-profit sector, headed by Joanne O'Brien, and their elder lawyer practice, headed by Brian. Each of them comes with years of experience and insight into the crucial demands of the community service organisations and the needs of the elderly and disadvantaged. Now, let's introduce Brian. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks again for bringing our first guest on CBA's podcast, Seen and Heard, and also thanks for the opportunity of reading your new book. Um, Having seen many of your presentations over the years on 
aged care, I felt like you were providing a commentary for me as I was reading the book. So how's it feel now that you're an author and how's the journey been as a writer and getting closer to the launch date? Well, I thought writing a book would be very important given that lawyers in their offices contain all this information and material about other people's stories. Most sure. of them are sad stories, but most of them come with messages. So having accumulated all these stories in my office about families and their ageing parents, I thought it was time to collate them, collect them, and then put them together in a book so that people can experience other people's experiences with an aim to also provide guidance to them to avoid the pitfalls that I have seen so many times over the years that I've been engaged in this sort of work. It's very sad, it's very tragic in many cases, but in the end it's helpful to know what to expect, for example, from these particular types of family dynamics in order to plan for them in particular and not be surprised and fall into what they call the crisis mode in later life. So it's been a wonderful experience, two years in the making. Wow. Uh, night time, morning time, and all those times when other people don't want you or need you. <laughs> so to that extent, it's been um, putting together all these stories in a compendium that covers the broad areas of demand and need in caring for older people. Now, I'd like to talk more about the book later in our conversation, but let's go back to your entree into elder law. Let's start with that. Firstly, for the uninitiated, what is elder law? Uh, elder law is a bit of a frontier, a greenfield area of law. Uh, it really originated in America originally, back in the early 80s, mm-hmm. where in America they have a very broken system when it comes to aged care. So lawyers back then decided that there was a need for lawyers to be specialising in the area of the interests of older people and their families. So they created this elder law space. We've picked it up in Australia, and I remember, I'd like to start in terms of my journey by saying it all started in an attic, but it didn't really. It started <laughs> in an aged care facility. Right. In 2000, I remember it distinctly, it was the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And I had a phone call out of the blue from a DON, a director of nursing, mm-hmm. in an aged care facility. A small Another one. acronym from that sector. Another acronym <laughs> from the aged care sector. Uh, and she rang me from a small aged care facility in Brisbane to say that she had a crisis on her hands. I don't know why she rang me, because I had no history at that stage in the, in the sector. So she rang me and told me that she had been dealing with six adult daughters of a resident and the daughters were accusing her facility of starving her mother to death. So she wanted to talk about how to resolve this very serious complaint. So I went to see the Don at the facility and I distinctly remember sitting in her office at her desk. She was on the other side of the desk and started to explain to me the problem and the distress it was causing everybody And then she said, and I can prove that we're not starving their mother to death. And she pushed this book across the table. It was open. It was a springback folder. And she said, this is proof that we're not starving her to death. She said, this is our bowel book. And I said, your what? (laughs) What? She She said, my bowel book. This book records the bowel movements of every resident of this facility every day of their life. Lovely, lovely. In this facility. (laughs) And if you look at her particular page, you will see that her bowel movements are very regular, (laughs) uh, which indicates she's very healthy in terms of food intake, for example. Further, she said, we have another instrument that we use, and we call it our stool tool. (laughs) I I can only imagine. what is your stool tool? And she pushed this other laminated card across the table towards me. 
and on the laminated card were these colour photographs of various types of stools. It's amazing, different stools are indicative of different types of health. So particular type of stool indicates you're very healthy and then the other variations indicate a certain amount of ill health. So she has a record of the particular type of stool, not just how many stools, but the type of stool that this resident had while she was in the facility. Right. We what a learning experience. <laughs> it was one of those eye-opening experiences because I'd never experienced an aged care facility before. This was my first time inside this august institution yes. that I knew existed, but only vaguely. Had no dealings with it whatsoever. So here I was sitting for the first time in the bowels, as they say, of uh, an aged care facility, learning for the first time about this other area of life that I had no idea about. Mm. It picked my interest uh, and my passion in some ways because I then started to do some research and found that in America, as I said, it was a burgeoning industry in the law in particular. So that then spurred my passion and I haven't looked back, as they say, from there. Because what I've realised is that one of the great social forces in life that's affecting not just older people's interests but the interests of their family is this issue of longevity. Mm. Longevity has a major impact on people's relationships that it never used to have. So gone are the days when... Because we were dead. We were dead. <laughs> gone are the days when you, know, you retired at 65 and dropped dead at 66, <laughs> still clutching the gold watch. <laughs> now we go through life at four miles per hour, three miles per hour, two miles per hour, one mile per hour, and we stop. We don't die, we just stop. Now those two, one and zero miles per hour is what previous generations never suffered. No. So those slowing down times, that, that frailty creep I call it, is where all the issues of elder law arise. Because it arises not just for the care of the older person, but also the demands it places on family members. And that mm. tension, that relationship, is where elder law is spurred from that very type of relationship that older people have in terms of their frailty with their retired children in particular. So what you have is retirement meeting retirement. <laughs> the retired older person meeting their retired adult children. Mm, right. Retired adult children have this vision of retirement. Beaches, water, sun, fishing, pleasure. Yep. And then suddenly all their them. parents <laughs> intervene. Their dreams are shattered by their parents' needs and demands. Mm. And that's something we don't take into account when we decide to retire. Mm. Now you were, a, I'd say you're a trailblazer, Brian, in this in this sector. You mentioned that obviously it started in America and then you sort of took up that mantle back at the beginning of this century. So that's now 20, 20 years of time. Um, but I observe now that there's quite a number of law firms and uh, practising um, in the aged care space for a start in elder law. How have you seen that evolution in this 20-year period? There's been certainly a development in the sense that the tentacles of elder law have spread out, both in terms of the professional mm. side of the law, but also, and this is always an insight into where a particular uh, sector is going, in the academic world. Mm. So we have universities, university law schools, mm. offering elder law as a law subject. Wow. So it's arrived, as they say, mm. as a, an academic subject and uh, a subject of professional interest as well because we have lawyers now parading that they do elder law. So mm. we never used to see that. It was yeah. never part of the armoury of a lawyer. But now it's being introduced into their armoury and offered as a service. Now, I sometimes think that you can underplay the significance and the complexity of elder law. Yes. Uh, because most people think of elder law as just wills. 
and enduring powers of attorney and death. Mm. But as we've seen, it's more complex than that. It's the whole later life relationship issue that is more complex than simply the act of dying and yes. being dead. Yeah. Most people see older people as either dying or dead, but they have more complexity than that. Um, both our firms um, work in this aged care space as well, but I'm the relatively speaking new kid on the block. CBA has been in this space now, this is our 12th year, but for you now, over 20 years working in this space. Currently, the, the sector, the more broader sector of aged care is moving through, wow, some significant reforms and changes and challenges, just to name a couple. We're currently going through a Royal Commission. We're dealing with a worldwide health pandemic, COVID-19. This is just two significant issues impacting on the sector. I'd like to hear your insights now. You know, you've been a long time in the sector. Give us your state of the nation of aged care. You know, what's your, what's your take on aged care now and, uh, you know, this longevity challenge that we have as a nation? Um, there's no doubt that aged care, be it residential or home care, as provided by the government and other organisations, is absolutely essential. There's no getting around that problem. We can't wave it away. It will be necessary. And it's also, from my observations, uh, both broke and broken. In other words, it's broken in the sense that if we have an aim of providing quality care to older people, that's not happening in many cases. Mm. In some cases it is. So let's be fair here. There are many good operators in the aged care space. Yes, yes. There are some who are not. Now, it's broken to the extent that it's broke, in the sense that I say, for example, in our tax system, they call it a progressive taxation system. Mm -hmm. In other words, the more you earn, the more tax you pay. Mm -hmm. In aged care, which is government-funded, the more you earn, the less you pay. (laughs) And the reason I say that is because when you look at the fees in aged care, everybody, irrespective of whether they're a millionaire or a pensioner, pays the same basic daily fee, about $52 a day, whether you're a millionaire or not. And then there's another fee called the means-tested care fee. Now, that means-tested care fee is also limited. In other words, it has a ceiling. Currently, you don't pay more than $67,000 in the means-tested care fee, no matter how long you live in an aged care facility, if it's it's more than five years, it's capped. So a millionaire can come in and know that all they will need to spend is their $52 a day for the basic fee and a maximum of $67,000 and the rest of the time is free. Wow. Now, question, that's very regressive. In other words, Mm. rich people aren't paying more than poor people or not very much more. So the reality is, if we're going to fix the brokenness, we need to fix the funding, how we pay for aged care. In other words, people have to pay more. It's all very well to say that older people deserve a reward in later life, that they've paid their taxes all their life, so they should be rewarded in later life by the taxpayer, the government, funding their aged care. Mm -hmm. But if I'm a multimillionaire, is it fair that I shouldn't be paying more than a person who is an aged care pensioner? And the reality at the moment is there is no real significant difference between what each of those groups pay. Mm-hmm. As a consequence, it's unfair. Mm. And as a consequence, because they're not paying their fair share, we have a system which is broken. In other words, we cannot afford to pay, for example, for quality care with quality staff. 
I mean, you don't have quality staff, you won't have quality care. And you don't have quality staff with quality care because we're not paying them enough. And there's not enough money to pay. The government has reached its no-go zone, as I see it, for more funding. Therefore, where do you turn? But you must turn to the user. The user pays. And this is another issue that raises a real shackle in the community, and that is the family home. (laughs) Don't touch the home. It's that castle surrounded by a moat. Untouchable. The drawbridge is up. There's a moat around it, (laughs) six feet deep, and it's full of crocodiles. We cannot touch it. And the reality is there are millionaires living in million-dollar homes in aged care and their million-dollar home cannot be touched. Mm. So the reality is, is that fair? Mm. Is it fair? Mm. Why is it that that asset is somehow, like an Indian Brahmin, protected (laughs) against being touched to contribute to your aged care? Why is that? And the reality is there are probably two reasons. One, because it is the castle and Australians have a great respect for their castle because Australians expect to pass the castle on to their children. Yes. And that's what the children expect. Yes. So we have this inheritance expectation that the government is very loath to shatter. And as a result, we won't touch that. We won't lower the drawbridge and ford the the moat and, and scale the ramparts of the home. We'll leave it there untouched by any invasion. So the reality is... Until we overcome that cultural aversion to the sanctity of the family home, we ain't going to get enough funding for aged care either. And then that's going to raise an interesting issue because the consequence of that will be people don't want to spend the money if the government changes the rules. So what's going to happen? Mum and Dad are going to stay at home. Now, Mum and Dad will stay at home and try and get home care, but they can't because the government has a limit on the amount of home care they're going to provide. So then mum and dad have to pay for home care, but they don't want to do that either because that means the inheritance is going to be spent. So what's the consequence? The consequence is, and this is my prediction, the consequence is that in the future, starting today, there will be more and more families actually providing care for their own parents. So we're going back to the future. Parents moving in with their children or children moving in with their parents. The two reasons, to stop them going into aged care and two, to preserve family assets. So families are going to have to prepare to sacrifice their retirement for the purposes of caring for their parents. Family caring is going to be the new age care of the future. Well, that's interesting because um, you know, reading your book recently, um, that sort of takes us back to 100 years ago. That's right. Where um, there was no age care and it was the actual responsibility. That's why you had a large family so that they would take care of you as you aged. That's exactly right. right. And uh, many uh, ethnic cultures and uh, um, other cultures around the world, it's still that way today. My, my, my wife Sue, um, Chinese background, that's very much their culture. They look after their, their mum and dad um, right till the very end. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that's going to be the norm. Yep. It's a return to the, the past. We didn't have aged care facilities at all in Australia until the 1950s. In the 1950s, the church and charitable sector start to build what they then called convalescent homes. Oh, that's a good marketing term. term, Where you convalesced (laughs) in an institution. Sounds painful. But the advantage of that development was that families then had this option. They could put their mum and dad into the convalescent home as opposed to what they used to do, which was to care for them at home. So what's happening now is that that convalescent home sector has burgeoned completely. 
uh, to where we are today, which is a whole industry, yeah. a very complex industry. But my prediction is we're going to be turning back in time uh, with wow. our aversion to residential institutional aged care and the limitations of home care back to the family to look after. In Spain, for example, there's a law which says if you don't look after your parents in their later life when they need it, you will be disinherited from their will. What? So they see that as an incentive <laughs> to actually encourage this development. In other words, to keep mum and dad in Spain out of Spanish aged care facilities in order for the family to look after them. Because that eases the load on the government yeah, to fund sure. those facilities and puts the burden back on the family to do so as an incentive. Wow. So, It's an incredible challenge for the whole country, isn't it? Because this affects everybody, this, this issue, really. And it's only going to get worse because more and more people are getting more and more older. So they talk about the pig and the python. Have you heard that concept? That the older generation, which is the current new older generation are the baby boomers. I hate that term, but that's probably how most people would describe them. People between 60 and 75, they're the new older generation. They're the ones that are being consumed by the python. And there's this lump at the throat of the python. And that lump proceeds through the python. You can see it. And then <laughs> I'm getting a visual, lump, thank you. That lump is going to be excreted. <laughs> and in 10 years' time, that excreted baby boomer generation will just be flooding the market yeah. when they're in their 80s and in their 90s. And a lot of them are going to get to 80 and 90, unlike yeah. previous generations. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do with them? Yeah. Where are we going to put them? Because they'll need someone to help them because they'll be frail, they'll be dependent. They will need someone to look after them. They will not be running marathons at 100. They will need someone to look after them. And in many cases, 24 hours a day. And in many cases, they cannot rely upon their spouse or their partner to do so because both of them will be coming frail at the same time. And the demands on each of them to look after each other will make them even frailer. And they lose the ability to look after each other. So they need outside people, such as families, to come in and look after them. We're talking about the future, and, um, and you mentioned the baby boomers, and you're right. I mean, it's the largest cohort in Australia's modern history coming through over the, the next 10, 20 years. Um, and an uh, example I heard recently was uh, an address from Paul Keating. You might, might recall he, he was talking about this challenge and... Uh, uh, you know, he was the architect of uh, quite a number of schemes in Australia in his time as Prime Minister and Treasurer. But he's suggesting that we need a, an urgent revamp of the funding for aged care, and he's suggesting a HECS-style funding for the future, Indeed. a bit like the university you know, funding program. So what, what do you think about that? I mean, you, you're saying that government funding is, is plateaued, and we've got to find this other alternative, which is the user pays. But is there a way in which the government can, like in Spain almost, yeah. uh, implement uh, uh, additional funding for aged care in the future? Yeah. Well, apart from what we talked about in terms of uh, making rich people pay, yes. uh, Paul's idea was essentially like a levy. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that, a bit like a Medicare levy. Yes. Australians might be resistant to that because they were resistant to Medicare levies when they were first introduced. Yes. Uh, but in terms of an ability to fund aged care, if that's where the government stays, in other words, if they stay in the funding of aged care space to the extent that they have, which is enormous, $20 billion, yeah. Yeah. that's a huge space to be in as a government funder, then 
as the demand increases and the government stays in the funding space, then we will need some form of saving to pay for that funding. Mm. We simply cannot raid consolidated revenue year after year in a, in a budget sense yep. without having some fund to resort to. I like the idea of planning for funding of the future of aged care and a levy is one way of doing it. Mm. Another way of doing it is to bring back that terrible concept that people now despise. Oh, no. I know what you're going to say. Death duties. Duties on death. Good old Joe. He got rid of that. He did. In 1971, I think it was, he got rid of death duties and gift duties. And you know what he did? He made all the other state premiers get rid of it too. (laughs) Because everyone was moving to Queensland. (laughs) So, in America, that's what they do. In America, they have this retrospective funding of their aged care system. In other words, you get Medicaid, it's called... Uh, to go into aged care, and it doesn't cost a lot if you're really poor, but when you die, if you die with a house, for example, that house can be then sold by the government effectively if you don't sell it voluntarily, and you can have to refund the American taxpayer from the sale of that house for the aged care fees they've paid for you when you're in aged care. So there's a retrospective funding from your assets as opposed to imposing it upon you now. It comes later on after death. So it's a death duty in that sense. I'm quite attracted to that uh, as a way of funding mm-hmm. or alleviating the funding demands, um, more so than the levy. I think we'll have huge resistance to the levy. Yeah. I mean, young people in their late teens may not be particularly helpful in terms of supporting having to pay an aged care levy as well as a Medicare levy mm. from their first wages check. Mm. They want to spend it on something more important than where they'll be 60 years later. Mm. They don't Agreed. think about 60 years later. Music festival, nights yeah, out, yeah, yeah, holidays. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, let's go now to uh, the, the book, Avoiding the Ageing Parent Trap. Uh, One of the great strengths I've observed of you over the years um, is that, uh, that often uh, when you present and, and uh, you've turned what often can be a technical, boring subject into an adventure of learning and discovery. And let me just recall one presentation some years back where you were the next speaker to be called up to this conference, and again, you're a lawyer, so everyone's going, another lawyer, called to the stage and introduced to some 500 guests at this auditorium. It was an aged care conference, and there were CEOs, board directors, and senior managers. But for the next hour, you had them spellbound on this aged care topic convincing them even to act out the classic children's story, we're going on a bear hunt. <laughs> Conservative, grey-haired men and women were laughing, were giggling, and to my surprise, they were joining in the hand motions reciting the verses with you. Of course, the story had significant messages far easier to digest than the bland PowerPoint presentations filled with pages of dot points. Um, but I found the read of this book a bit like one of your presentations. It was almost like a commentary style. You were almost beside me as, as I was reading it. So tell me, um, why the book? Why now? What, what sort of motivated you? Was it that nurse that called you out of the blue, as you mentioned earlier? What motivated me was, I mentioned it before, that I had accumulated all these stories in my legal practice about yeah. uh, older people and families and families imploding as a result Mm. of the demands of their Ah, parents. Unbelievable. And started to realise that there was a major problem here because uh, families weren't trying to anticipate or confront the future. They were waiting for the future to arrive. They Mm. were 
in, generally speaking, when they saw me, in crisis mode. In other words, suddenly an event occurred. Suddenly mum had a fall. Suddenly mum was in hospital. And the hospital said she can't go home. Mm. Where is she going to go? So that classic crisis then confronted a family, a family that could be dissipated all over the world, Equatorial Guinea, Houston, Texas, and somewhere in uh, northern Alaska, trying to make a decision and come to some agreement about what should happen in a very difficult, urgent situation. Mm. So suddenly they were confronted by difficult decisions to be made quickly. Mm. They had never anticipated this. They'd never discussed it. They never confronted what the issues would be that they'd need to confront, for example. And I realised that because of all these stories that I had, because I spent most of my time in crisis management for these people, that there needed to be a better way for families to confront the future. So this book was generated by that experience and by a light bulb epiphany moment where I thought, I need to tell people about these stories mm. because these stories are really helpful yeah. to tell you the future. In other words, I can tell you the future for your family and these stories will tell you what some of those futures are. I'm a future reader. I can tell you because I've seen them all. Mm. I don't think there's many family experiences I haven't had as a lawyer. So I can share with you in this book those experiences. That might do two things. One, it will inform you about those experiences and two, it will actually make you do something to confront the future now as opposed to when the future arrives. There are three types of people in, in life. There are those people who watch something happen. There are those people who wait for something to happen and those people who make something happen. The people who wait and watch are those people who in inevitably end up in a crisis. Yep. And the consequence of crisis is the legacy that parents leave where they haven't confronted it either is an imploding family relationship. Mm. Because suddenly, happy family, happy, 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 crisis. Next step, unhappy family, unhappy, unhappy, unhappy. And if they had planned for this, looked at the options, considered the, the solutions and the resolutions, they would be better prepared for arm to do something. Mm. Agreed. And that may keep them together. The process of actually discussing it is a bringing together. And you can keep that together when invariably the crisis happens so to that extent the book aims to do the information bit and secondly the action bit in other words stimulate action as opposed to reaction you suggest in the book that our marriage vows should be changed until death or dementia do us part what do you mean by that <laughs> well what i mean by that is that uh, traditionally as you know you probably said it yourself uh, until death do us part. Yes. Now, death is death. Death is an event that will never be repeated. Whereas with dementia, dementia is a form of, I sometimes think it as a form of divorce. Okay. Because effectively, in the worst cases, you end up with two people who are never the same. They end up in a relationship that's not the same. They end up in a relationship where they don't know each other. So they're strangers. Mm. It's the death to their relationship. Now, that in itself is a nil-the-law event in terms of how do you respond to that situation. It's an event for the person who doesn't have dementia, the other spouse. What do they do with their life? Yeah. I rented a woman recently 
She'd been married a second time for 35 years. Her husband had had dementia for the last 12 years and he was in a nursing home for all those 12 years. So her life was devoted, devoted to seeing him every day in his aged care facility. The rest of her life was nothing. That was her life. Her life was tending to him and he didn't know her. He kept calling her his sister. <laughs> so he didn't really know who she was. Sure. Except to say she came every day to see him. So she'd mortgaged her life, the rest of her life, to being his spouse. Now the question I ask is, in the book, is that what you want to do? Or is there another life you could pursue where you don't have to do should you sacrifice your life to the interests of a person who doesn't know you anymore? Mm. Wow. Who doesn't recognise you as your spouse and, in fact, can act out with other people as if they were his spouse. <laughs> Acting out is a major problem with people with dementia. They can lose their sexual inhibitions and suddenly you as the spouse can see your partner fronting other women, for example, in pursuit of those women. Now... Till death do us part, or is it till dementia do us part? And of course, in aged care, the uh, the odds are stacked in the male favour in that respect. Aren't yeah, they? very much so. <laughs> I think there's a good example of that in the book. Yeah, it certainly <laughs> is. What really surprised me, Brian, reading the book was the extraordinary circumstances families get themselves into, uh, as you've mentioned a couple of times already, um, at, when their parents are ageing, and the enormous toll it seems to take emotionally financially, not only on the parents but their adult children and then even the wider family. You know, I was left feeling despair, anger and even a certain amount of hopelessness. Um, Can you give us a few stories, you know, just to highlight some of these extraordinary circumstances and how do you feel about dealing with this day in, day out? So what I have noticed, a theme of the work that I do, is how otherwise historically good people can turn into bad people because of the opportunity that the ageing of their parents presents. Mm. Classic example is when I had about two years ago where an elderly woman had just finished her divorce from her husband. She was 73. From the property settlement, she received $300,000. She was also terminally ill with cancer. One of her three children, her daughter, said to her, what a mum... You move into my house with my husband and my children and I'll look after you. And by the way, uh, why don't you put that $300,000 into my bank account so we don't have to tell anyone, such as Centrelink. (laughs) Right. Mum was literally going to be on the street. Uh, She'd just come out of hospital. So she accepted that very generous offer. She moved in. Within three months, mostly at the behest of the daughter's husband, this is the in-law, Uh, She was out on the street, evicted after three months. Remember, she's terminally ill as well. So she comes to see me and I write the usual letter to the daughter and say, give us back that $300,000. And typically, as we find, the response from the daughter was, I'm sorry, that's not coming back to you because it was a gift. (laughs) The word gift is one of the most common words you will hear from uh, miscreant adult children. Mm. Mum gave it to me. And, of course, that's a very easy assertion to make because mum may have lost her capacity, for example, Mm. and is unable to say, one way or the other, what was the nature of that advance. Mm. So the problem is an issue of evidence to start with. 
But in a situation where that was her only significant asset, $300,000, she had two other children to give away in her entire assets to one daughter on the basis it was a gift was incomprehensible. Yeah. It just didn't happen. The tragedy was also, of course, that given her condition, we had to sue the daughter and halfway through the litigation, mum died. And here's the irony. She never changed her will. And in her will, she'd appointed that daughter that she gave the $300,000 to as the executor of her will. Uh-huh. Now, an executor in any other circumstance would have pursued that daughter to get the money back on behalf of the estate. She didn't need to. But she didn't need to because <laughs> she was the one who took the money. Oh, my Lord. So everything stopped. There was no point in pursuing it. So $300,000 was blown away uh, because of a daughter who thought she was being helpful. Well, that's the best interpretation you can put on it. Yeah. Uh, and turned out to be effectively a criminal. Good person suddenly transforms and mutates into bad person because of the lure of money. Yeah. Lots of little amounts of money, big amounts of money. Yeah, so That's the thing you've got to be wary of with children. They appear to be very helpful, dutiful and filial duty children, but they can turn on you where there's temptation. Yes. And particularly where they have other demands on their life. Yeah. Such as children, own family and husbands, and wives, yeah. Yeah. etc. Yeah. So their own yeah. financial demands. This is like a honeypot. Yes. That can transform their character simply because of the ability to access this money. Extraordinary. The other thing I should say is that what a lot of people don't realise is that most of us have more than two parents. Many of us have four parents. Of course. We have our own ageing parents and we have our own ageing parents in law. Mm-hmm. And the worst case scenario is where you still have those four parents and they're all getting very old. And they're all getting very frail. At the same time. At the same time. And suddenly, either all of them or some of them need aged care. Mm. So you've got husband and wife with their respective parents both having demands made upon them from their own parents to finance, for example, or help in the aged care space. Yes. Like move in with mum or dad or have mum and dad parents or move in with them. Yeah. It is an incredibly difficult situation in terms of the pressure it puts on that husband and wife, just their relationship. Sure. It can lead, as it does, as I've experienced, it leads to divorce between husband and wife because of the demands of their respective parents. Yeah. They can't cope yeah. with the demand. Look, we could talk all day, Brian, about yeah, the number of stories yeah. uh, in the book and, uh, uh, yeah, there, there's so many. It was really uh, eye-opening from my perspective. I live a dull and boring life, I must say. <laughs> Um, Wait for it. <laughs> but let, let me also uh, ask you about the DIY family and uh, the challenges of that approach when you're supporting ageing parents. I know you were talking a bit about that in your book as well. The DIY. Yeah, the yeah. do-it-yourself people. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that aged care is one of their later life challenges to get on top of. Mm. So instead of going to see professional advisors about tell me about the system, what's the best decision to make in this situation by mum and dad, they'll try and decide, because they're retired, see, so they'll have time on their hands, <laughs> they'll do some Googling. Yep. So they Google and they type in aged care and away they go. And they think by doing that they can get on top of the system, they can understand the system and as a result they can help mum or dad make appropriate decisions. Now that's what I have to call, and this is not self-interest talking, uh, foolish. Yeah. Because one of the things with aged care is that 
it doesn't allow for what they call the oops factor. Oops, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. It's very difficult to reverse decisions you make for mum and dad in aged care. Sure. Very difficult, particularly with Centrelink. So those people who think they can understand the aged care system, along with its kissing cousin, the (laughs) Centrelink system, because they both have to work together. Yeah. You understand both systems, and both systems have different rules and regulations that both interplay with each other and stand on their own. How you meld and merge those systems together to understand it and then apply it to your parents' situation can be absolutely disastrous if you don't do it properly, such as getting financial advice, even getting legal advice. Because if you're someone's enduring power of attorney, for example, if I'm someone's enduring power of attorney, I'm wearing a hat called the enduring power of attorney. I'm not a hat called the son, I'm a hat called the enduring power of attorney, which means I have all these legal responsibilities that I don't have as a son. And one of those responsibilities is to make prudent decisions for the person I am the enduring power of attorney for, maybe mum or dad. Mm -hmm. If I don't do something prudent, such as getting advice, which is very prudent, and simply make decisions without advice, I'm exposing myself to getting sued. I wouldn't be sued as a son, but I could get sued as the enduring power of attorney wearing that other hat. So where you are decision makers for your parents, doing it yourself can be very dangerous. Now, Brian, obviously the main message we want to give to people today is get out and get the book when it comes out because it's got strongly pl- urge that, would plenty, you plenty of stories to tell. And uh, what I really took was a, a great guide uh, to uh, the, the pitfalls and challenges that can confront a family as, as their parents age. But let's finally, what are the big takeaways uh, for, for you from the book? What should people take away from reading the book? They should take one fact away. The fact is, in many cases, their parents will live a long time and in doing so will provide demands upon you as children to do lots of very significant things that you never planned for. Significant events. It's all about later life as event management. So managing your parents as they will need. Uh, My children will have to manage me hopefully if I live another 15 or 20 years. They'll be managing me in later life. The best way to do that is not to wait to have to manage. In other words, don't wait for that crisis. Start talking now about how to deal with that crisis when Mm. it arrives. Mm. And it will. Mm. It will. Mm. Most people don't live and drop dead one day. Most people live and then they go through a frailty dying process. Mm. We are dying. It's a process. And then we die. So that dying period, that going down period, as someone said the other day, it's like taking the plug out of a, a bath. Mm. The water goes out and it swirls around and it swirls around and it swirls around and then it disappears. That's what dying's all about. It's mm. that swirling, swirling, swirling and disappearing. Gone. Planning for that crisis is, is hugely important. I call it latter-day family planning. <laughs> you may remember family planning. I do, yes. You do? Yeah, oh, that's good. I do. Um, I do. This is latter-day family planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So planning I went for to the our courses. family. Yep. Um, as opposed to what we used to do in another dimension. Planning for our family is the big point out of this. Understanding what could happen, and that's what the book tells you could happen, and in many cases will happen, mm. and then doing something now to anticipate that and have in place a plan. I know plan is an overused, cliched word. 
Everyone wants to plan. We've got financial planners, we've got all sorts of planners. But it's a really important thing to do when it comes to dealing with your parents' later life. Yeah. Because their later life will be complex, not simple, complex. Mm. Do it. Brian, thank you. Now, when does the book come out? Well, uh, at the moment, it's anticipated to be in March next year. We'll have to wait. Unfortunately, you'd have to get excited for a bit longer. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, thank you very much for your time and also thanks to our podcast partner, CRH Law. You know, having read Brian's book and listening to Brian with his real-life stories today, it's got me really rethinking my relationships. Firstly, with my ageing parents and the time I still have with them and, of course, my ageing siblings and the relationships I want to have with them, particularly when my parents pass on. Then my own ageing process, and, and I am now more determined than ever to learn from the mistakes I've read in this book. The message for me is don't let time and the inevitable ageing process take control of you. Get your own strategic plan for your retirement and the next phase of your life. And finally, what sort of relationship my wife Sue and I want to have with our adult children as they establish their own families? There is much to ponder. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing communication consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you've enjoyed our first podcast. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd, and this is Seen and Heard. <laughs>